0: Well, now we want to turn our attention to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. If you're new to Grace Church, this is your first time with us. Just so you know, it's our practice to go through the Bible together. We do this because we believe nothing could get better than what God has given us in his word. We do not believe that the opinions of men such as myself or others are better than the Bible. In fact, anything that such men as myself or others should teach should come from and you should be able to see yourself in the Bible. And as our practice go through the various books of the Bible and we're in the writings of Matthew, Matthew is one of the first followers of Jesus himself, Jesus of Nazareth. That is indeed his geographic location where he was from, born of Mary the Virgin um, and the significance of his life. Matthew was himself at once a tax collector, a traitor to his own people, a Jewish people who had kind of given up on Judaism as a point of connection and concern and really given into the Roman Empire and was hated by his fellow Jews. Uh, He met Jesus, surrendered all of who he was, his profession, his desire, his personhood, that he would be a follower of Jesus. And now after the fact is writing about the teachings of Jesus. And so we have this eyewitness account, and we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in chapter 26. Just to, again, give us an understanding of this, Jesus has just been teaching about and been showing the introduction of the Lord's Supper, the transition from the Passover to the Lord's Supper. He's been talking about the betrayal of Judas, and that's about to have just come to pass, as we'll see in the, uh, in the uh, verses that we saw last week, we then see him praying in the garden and even those disciples who pledged their obedience and pledged their commitment to him can't even stay awake with him, let alone be committed by his side as we saw last week. They fled when Jesus was arrested and now we come to our text this morning, Matthew 26 verses 57 to 68. I've titled today's message, Blood Lust for Jesus. Bloodlust for Jesus. That term bloodlust maybe needs some definition, might be concerning to you what exactly that term means. It means a desire for bloodshed, the desire to kill or to see a person or people killed. We can see this as someone who is driven by bloodlust is essentially someone who is acting in an extremely violent way because their emotions have been aroused by events around them. Tragically, history records how, in times of war, soldiers can get overwhelmed with bloodlust. They can become so desensitized to killing, so overwhelmed with the emotion of what's happening around them, and then personally affected, perhaps, by fellow soldiers who have died beside them, seemingly unjustly that they want a sense of vengeance. They want to carry that out, and they just are blinded by their angry emotion and overtake them, and they become executioner no matter the actual incident that they find themselves in. It's also evil individuals... In society, even in our own country's history, we've seen people whose consciences have been so seared like an iron burning flesh, their minds being so turned off to right and wrong that they want to see people die no matter how wrong it is. Friends, this morning in our text, we see that's exactly what's happening we're going to see that the Jewish religious leadership at the time of Jesus' arrest was driven by bloodlust. They were not concerned about the facts. They were not concerned about knowing the truth. They wanted a result no matter what it would cost. And that result was nothing less than the death of Jesus. They wanted one thing no matter what. With that in mind, would you look with me at Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered him, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you, Christ. Who is it that struck you? And we'll stop there. What we're seeing in this text is the bloodlust for Jesus. First of all, in verses 57 to 62, we see what is undeniably the perversion of justice. The perversion of justice. Now it's worth noting here that none of the gospel writers, not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, not John, none of them record in any one of their accounts all of the details of Jesus's arrest, all of the trials that he went through. And the reason for that is because no one of them was present in all of the places, but it was later told to them and then it was represented to the followers of Christ. It's a complicated story. And you have to understand this, the reason it's complicated is because the competing jurisdiction between the Jewish leaders and their court of officials and the Roman occupying forces who have sort of ultimate authority in the land. Those of you not familiar with history here, this is going back 2,000 years ago, this is in the place of Israel, but Israel is not in charge of Israel the people of Rome, the occupying citizens of Rome under Nero's reign, they're in charge of the land and so they have ultimate authority and so they have Roman leaders in that place, people like Herod, people like Pontius Pilate. So there's a sort of competing problem here because when the Romans conquered a country, they normally allowed as much of the local administration of law to stay in place. Not only was that helpful to them administratively, It also kind of bought them peace with the people. Hey, the Romans aren't that bad. Yet, they never wanted to leave everything to the people because they wanted to make sure if there's any insurrection rising up against the Roman Empire, it would be identified and it would be addressed. Only they could deal with, for example, capital punishment, the right to put people to death. And so this is what you have here. You have this sort of tension between Jewish law and ruling and Roman law. Now, I have here for you an understanding of the six trials that Jesus would go through in a stunningly brief amount of time. And I think we have this for you on the screen. As you can see, Jesus' six trials. You have the religious trials before Annas, which is being referenced in John chapter 18. I'll speak about him in a second. He goes from his house, really right next door to his son-in-law's house, Caiaphas, the one mentioned referenced in our text here in Matthew 26. And then in Matthew 27, we'll see in the coming weeks before the Sanhedrin, all of the council as they're represented yet again in more details, we'll see. But there's also the civil trials. So there's the religious trials, and then there's the civil trials. You have before Pilate in John chapter 18. He is the Roman leader over the land, and so they're kind of passing Jesus from the religious people over to the political leader. Pilate doesn't want to touch him, so he sends him to Herod. It's kind of like a little bit of a peacemaking thing between Herod and Pilate, because they had beef with each other, and so like, hey, this is how I will appeal to Herod. Let him make the decision. Herod basically passes him back to Pilate and says, I'm not touching this one with the 10-foot pole. This is a hot mess. Pontius, you got to make the decision. All of this is happening in a short amount of time, these six trials that Jesus goes through. And what we're seeing here is really in detail of the second religious trial with a passing reference to the first one. Look back at our text, if you will, verse 57. Then those who had seen Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. You have to recognize what's taking place here. First of all, there's a guy named Annas. You can see him in John chapter 18, he's referenced. Annas is actually the high priest. According to Jewish law, Once a high priest, always a high priest until you died. That would be Jewish law. But by the time you have here in the time of Jesus, that actually was not true. In fact, Roman turn and Roman rule, they would often change over the high priest role in a number of different ways. But the truth is, even though Annas is not officially the high priest anymore, he unofficially is still the high priest. Why do I know this? Because in history, Annas had every single one of his five sons... Be the high priest after him. And then after he went through all five of those sons, he then went to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who's referenced here, who is the high priest. They're basically like figureheads who are kind of representing. In fact, Caiaphas' house here in Israel, in Jerusalem, was a palatial mansion. It would be like just an overwhelming, nice, beautiful estate. In fact, on his property would have been the house of his father-in-law, Annas. And so Jesus would have been brought first to Annas, and then he's brought to Caiaphas. Just to kind of set the scene for you what this would have been like. He's bound and sent to Caiaphas. But Notice what's taking place here. And that's why I've titled this section The Perversion of Justice. Because look at what it says in verse 57. It says, it led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. Friends, this is understandably lost on most of you. I completely understand that. Just to help you understand what's taking place, this trial is taking place somewhere between midnight and early morning hour. No trial in Jerusalem law should take place during that time. In fact, the reason this trial is illegal is because, first of all, The trial is supposed to be held not at night, but in the daytime. Any criminal trial held in the daytime. Secondly, any trial that involved a capital case, as this one did, could only be held at the temple. And thirdly, any capital case had to be held in public so all could see and attend it. There'd be no debating, no discussing, no disagreeing over the undeniable evidence. They don't care about that. They're not interested in the truth. They've already reached their verdict. They're committed to accomplish this end. In the dark of night, they have conspired together and they're already in attendance. They have been waiting, assembled, You can see what it says there in verse 59. It says, the chief priests and the whole council. Now, just to understand this idea of the whole council, this is a reference to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would be 71 elders. The reason you had an odd number is you always had a breaking vote if it came down to a split vote. You'd always have a breaking vote to make a decision. Now, just to be clear, it's more than likely not all 71 of these people are present, In fact, that wasn't necessarily even needed to have them all be present. They would hold court daily, except on the Sabbath or other holy days. Technically, they did not have the power to administer capital punishment, but in the case of Stephen, late in the book of Acts chapter 6, that didn't matter. They stoned him anyway and killed him. Interested in justice only when it serves their purposes. Even at times, the Roman government would ignore such issues as just a matter of political expediency. When a capital case like this is involved, they could have up to 23 people present, and that would make a quorum to make such a decision. A priestly nobility, aristocratic elders, a mixing of Sadducees and Pharisees, and here they are in verse 59, they are present. Now look at what it says there. They're seeking False testimony. Seeking false testimony. Notice how clear this is. They don't want to know the truth. They want to find out information that will support the lies they've already concluded to be true. They're interested in witnesses that will corroborate their already reached conclusions. They don't want to know the truth about Jesus. They don't want to hear him speak to them honestly and accurately. They are deceptively blinded by their desire to validate their own identity and their own belief. That's true for a lot of people today. I commend those of you who are here who are not Christians Your presence speaks well of you, and your ability to actually listen to the Word of God for yourself, have it read and explained to you, so that you might, by your own understanding, not listen to false witnesses, not listen to partial and deniability, but to actually hear the truth of the good news of Jesus, and to see with your own eyes, and to hear with your own ears the truth of who He is. We're not making this up. You can read it for yourself. It speaks well of you, for those of you who are investigating Christianity, that you would take a different approach than those that we read about in this text who are not investigating Christianity. They've already concluded about Christianity. They reject it wholeheartedly because of the implication of it for their life. They will not in any way, in any form, submit to the teachings of Christ. So what happens here in the text. This perversion of justice as it describes here, they're seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. They found none. You gotta imagine how disappointing this would be. This is a, a rush to decision. This is a rush judicial proceeding. Okay, everybody's here. Okay, let's get this thing over with. Okay. Uh, who did you get to bring to tell us what is bad? And get, people are coming and presumably one person speaks and another person speaks, but the second person speaks contradicts the first person. You're like, okay, that was bad. Let's try this again. Okay, a third person to speak. Okay, does that corroborate with the second person? Yes, but what do we do about the first person? Okay, which one are we gonna dismiss? Now what you have to understand is judicial law, according to Jewish history, is good, is right. In fact, there are so many commendable things that even today in our own country that we benefit in our country from what we see in the Judeo-Christian ethic, from what we see in the law of God. The problem is not the law. The problem is the distortion, perversion of it to get what you want. But they're so twisted and so confused, they can't even find a way to validate the charges until we get to verse 61. Verse 61. At the very end of verse 6, he says, the last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. At last, we've scored. At last, we have found someone who will tell us why we should put him to death. Here's the problem. Jesus actually never said this. He said something close to this. but didn't say this. Another example of taking Jesus' words out of context to support a belief that they already want to believe and just kind of use Jesus as somebody who validates their belief. We see this today. People who selectively soundbite the Bible to say what they want to say. Jesus said to turn the other cheek, did he not? Therefore, he wants you to love and forgive others in what they've done, even if it's criminal. You should just forgive. Not bring any concern up. Jesus never spoke about homosexuality specifically. Therefore, he's not concerned about that, nor should you be. Back down and back off. Jesus said not to judge others, right? And is that what Matthew 7 says? Therefore, any time you bring a concern up about me to me, let alone to others, that's gossip and wrong, you're just simply disobeying Jesus and dishonoring me. Back down, you judge. Selective soundbiting of what Jesus said and didn't say, taken out of context in a way that supports one's already reached beliefs. What's happening here in the text? Or verse 62, and it says, excuse me, in verse 61, it says, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. What's actually happening here? Well, in John chapter 2, He has flipped over for the first time the tables of the money changers in the temple. They ask him, what gives you the right to think you can do this? And Jesus in that context says, "Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He is actually making reference to himself. He is the fullness of the representation of the temple of God, referring to his resurrection to come. But hey, let's not the truth get in the way. Let's not your facts distract me from the reality of what I want to already believe. So we see this as a perverse form of justice. Secondly, in the text, we see a proclamation of deity. Because this entire time he's quiet. Verse 63, Jesus remained silent. In conversation with somebody else, perhaps someone you work with, uh, perhaps a friend, perhaps a family member. Have you ever had those moments? I'm sure you have, most of us have. We've been on the receiving end of it, we've perhaps even been on the doing end of it, where you ask someone, or someone rather ask you a question, but you know, I, I, I hear what's going on here. You're making a statement in the form of a question. You, you already know the answer to the question that you're asking or believe yourself to know, and no matter what I say, no matter how I say it, no matter where I'll say it, you're, you're just not going to believe me. So there's a real sense of like, am I just kind of wasting my time in this conversation? Am I just like, hey, honestly, it'd be better if I said nothing than if I said something and ironically continue to add to this Adversarial conversation we're having, this sort of argument we're taking place. I, I'm not interested in sort of participating in an already reached conclusion. That's unnecessary. Nobody would miss this scene. It's midnight. The torches are lit. The court is filled with officials that should all be in bed. It's a mockery of a trill, of a real trial. Everybody would know what Jewish law is versus what's taking place here. And they have questions for Jesus. And Jesus says nothing. What's the point? What's the point? So then, what does Caiaphas do? He makes him swear an oath. Verse 63, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. He's basically, Appealing, he's basically making him swear an oath. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, for those of you new to Christianity, you've perhaps heard Jesus' name said as follows, Jesus Christ. And you might think, understandably, naively, Christ is his last name, Jesus is his first name. But that's not true. Jesus A translation in the Greek from his Hebrew name, Yeshua, Jesus, Christ. Christ is actually a theological title. It's a religious title. It means anointed one. It means Messiah. Caiaphas knew this. He's asking Jesus of Nazareth, who's not just a rabbi, not just a religious teacher. He's like, Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? Jesus' answer verse 64 you have said so and what's he doing here this is an indirect way of making an affirmation of saying yes that places the responsibility back on the one who asked the question this is the same way that Jesus replied to Judas's question back in chapter 26 if you'll just look with me briefly a few verses back you're in still the same chapter Jesus is talking about one who's gonna betray him. And different disciples are asking in verse 20, verse 32, is it I, Lord? And then in verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? We talked about the difference here and how he asked his question. Jesus said to him, you have said so. He is making the affirmation by saying yes, but putting it at the foot of the person who's asked the question, he's like, just as you have said, it is so. But what he does is even something more significant. Because Jesus, throughout his ministry, has been avoiding these kinds of titles in his ministry because of the way that they would be often misunderstood and misapplied. Now he wants clarification, he wants to add some additional information. And this is why he says, but I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. You're like, wow. That just went from a yes to a supersized yes. Why? Well, look with me at the screen, and I have these for you. You can see the text, Psalm 110 verse one is what Jesus is referencing, that the Jewish listener, the Jewish people present would have understood. David says in Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Also, the prophet Daniel in chapter 7 verses 13 and 14, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory And a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So I want you to hear those verses when Jesus says, what he says in verse 63, or excuse me, verse 64. You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is basically saying, not only is it so, but you'll be convinced of this in the future when you are judged when I return. This is exactly what Paul says in Acts chapter 17. Paul's having a sermon, similar to how I'm having a sermon with you right now. He's talking to an entire stadium full of Greek non-Christians. They're not Jewish. They've not been raised with the Bible. They didn't have a copy of this in front of them. They didn't have unscreens on screens behind them. And Paul, who is himself Jewish, is talking to a bunch of non-Jewish people he says, hey, God created all things and he appointed places and times all people should live. I don't want to tell you about who this God is, how he has been slow to judgment, how he has been kind and sustaining and providing for you. But he says, he has appointed a day when he will send one, his son, who basically will judge the world according to his righteousness. The righteousness of God as seen in his son will be seen that when the son returns, he will judge all those who have ever lived. And all those who have faith in Christ, in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins, will be spared. Forgiven, loved, adopted, the promise of eternal life. And all those who have not will rightly, convincingly, and finally be judged. Acts 17 It describes how the people responded to that sermon. Some people hated it. Some people wanted to know more about it. Well, here in the text in Matthew 26, they only hated it. Which takes us thirdly to the pledge of death. Verses 65 to 68. Go back to the text. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face, struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? What's happening here in the text, this priest is tearing his clothes. This was something that would be forbidden for a high priest to do. But the Talmud made an exception for the high priest who would witness a blasphemy. But Caiaphas' grief, his concern seemingly for the holiness of God, and you're not blaspheming it, was just theatrics. He was just gloating over having found something that he could base his charge against Jesus on. We see this all the time in courtrooms. Theatrics, people pretending with emotions, anger, grief, fear. They're just trying to manipulate and control the jury. They might believe them. Even this past week in a well-known celebrity trial, such an individual was accused of such theatrics. Whether it's true or not, I'm not here to pass judgment, but simply an illustration of how we're so used to that, it doesn't surprise us friends, here in the text, Caiaphas is putting on a display. He is play acting for his fellow council, acting like he has a zeal for the Lord, when really he just has a zeal for death, for the silencing of Jesus. That's exactly what we see here as he appeals to them, and they respond back like a choir, a choir of judgment. He cries out for a question. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And like an antiphonal choir responding back, they play their part perfectly. He deserves death. How ironic. Those that deserve death call out for the one who does not to die. While the one who is about to die does so so that those who are, deserve death could actually be forgiven and not die but have everlasting and eternal life. They cry for his death and in time, exactly what they will get. But then the cruelty begins. The corruption has been seen. Now the cruelty begins. The Sanhedrin officials spit in his face, strike him with their fists, mock him, Admittedly, this is difficult to read briefly to you this morning in the midst of many verses, and it potentially pass you by and not touch where it should touch at the nerve of your thinking and the opportunity for your reflection. There is today, appropriately, rightly, a great sense of a desire for justice. And there have been an embarrassing amount of cases shown in our country's history of men and women who have been convicted of crimes of which they were not guilty, some of which tragically were learned after the fact that they were put to death or died. Others, thankfully in the nick of time, were proven to be innocent and were let off and released, though years, if not decades, of their life had been lost to that false accusation and false conviction. That understandably and appropriately should get us. That should affect us. We should desire true justice. And for God's will to be truly seen in the triumph of truth. But what's even more difficult to watch here is not just the injustice of one man by other men. Who's wrongly convicted and wrongly treated, it's the fact that he does so as a substitute for fellow sinners like you and like me. When you see these actions committed, they're spitting on him as showing a disdain for his claim to be divine status. We spit on you who say that you are God. When they strike him, it shows that you claim to be God, claim to be coming in power, and yet you don't even have the power to keep us from striking you. We mock you for your claim of deity. They slap him and they mock him. Why would they do this? They mock him for saying, "You claim to know all things and know the future, and yet you don't even know which one of us just hate you. You're a farce and a fake. But 700 years before this scene would take place, this exact scene would be spoken of. I want to ask you, in closing, if you have a Bible, to turn to Isaiah 53. If you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah is, just go to the middle of your Bible. You'll more than likely find the book of Psalms. It has 150 songs in it. You go to the right of Psalms. You'll come to Isaiah eventually. Isaiah 53. And I don't know that I could better describe it than to have the word describe it for us. So follow along with me from Isaiah 53 to the end of the chapter. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb has led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut out, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for many